Galatians chapter 1. And, and I want you, as we start to, to dump, jump into this book, what I want to do is I want you to imagine that this is a letter that you've opened and you're beginning to read it. Now, letters, we don't write many letters that much anymore, right? We, we text, Snapchat, we don't send letters, but this was a letter that, that Paul, one of God's apostles, sent to a church that he had planted in what would be now modern-day Turkey. So he sat down and wrote this letter. And there were some things going on in the church that he had planted that really concerned him. And so the way to get a message to someone was, one, either to go see them or to write them a letter. And the intent of this letter, there was a bunch of small churches that he had planted. They would have read the letter and then they would have passed it to the next church and they would have read it there and they would have passed it to the next church and read it. What I want you to try to do is to imagine either, this will help you, imagine Paul sitting down thousands of years ago to write this letter, or imagine that you're the person that's receiving this letter. You're opening it up. That's how it's intended to function. It's a letter. So let's read it that way. You just imagine Paul. Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's standing now at this point. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Some serious emotion here. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. God, as we open this book, Your Holy Word, we believe Your Word has been inspired, written by Paul, but inspired by Your Spirit, and it's intended 
to speak to us today. Lord, I pray that you would do that as we unpack this letter of Galatians over the next couple months. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's get to work. I'm taking a grad class right now. I'm, a, I'm, I'm studying uh, my master's degree in communications at Westchester University. And I'm taking a class right now on family communication. It's really cool. You're into this kind of thing. And so, I, and so one of the things that we've been studying the first week is the correlation between the amount of time a family talks to one another, so the amount of time spent in conversation, and the relationship with that and how satisfied a family member is with their family life. So they're trying to measure communication, how much you communicate, with how satisfied you are. Now, generally speaking, this is what they find. It's not, it's not, it's not even going to be that novel, but here's what they generally find. If you talk a lot together you generally have a satisfying family life. Now, there are some, some interesting details there, but that's generally what they find. But they do say this as well, that the content of your conversations matters, right? So, so if you are in a relationship with someone, let's say you're dating someone, and you're, you're in this relationship with them, and you only ever talk about superficial things. Like you, your boyfriend is only talking about the weather, the eagles. Um, he's only ever talking about the news. Like at some point, you need a little bit more than that, right? If that relationship is going to satisfy, at some point, you got to talk about serious things. You want to talk about dreams, hopes, fears, expectations, life, death things that really matter. That determines whether you're going to be satisfied in that relationship. Every once in a while, even though it's uncomfortable, you have to talk about serious things. You ever been sitting there, with, you're sitting in a conversation with someone that you love, and you were just, your plans for the night were to chill. And their plan is obviously like serious conversation. You know that feeling, right? You ever been sitting there, it's like 10 o'clock at night, you're like, you're just finishing up, and you're ready to go to bed. And they've decided that now is the time to talk about dreams, hopes, fears, discouragements, or things they want to share with you. You, you know that feeling. But, but if you put that off forever and ever and ever, and never get back to that serious conversation, your relationship is going to suffer. There's a time and a place and a need for seriousness in our lives. There's a time and a place for serious in our conversations. Without it, our relationships lack depth. They lack substance. And that's true for the church, too. There's a time and a place and a need for the discussion in the church of serious things. Church, wasn't, church isn't developed or planned just to cater to our conveniences. Right? It's not, it's not I, go to ch I want to go to church where the pastor stands up and only ever says frivolous things, superficial things. If, if you do that long enough, 
what you will find is church is a place where your soul begins to shrivel, where your soul is not very satisfied. Because you got to hear serious things. You were meant for that. God created you for that. To talk about matters that are truly important. If the service is only designed to make you feel good, eventually, undeniably, you will experience some dissatisfaction of soul. Now, God is all our joy. I, I hate it when Christians get the wrong, when people get the wrong perception of Christians. They think that, oh, Christian, only serious, which equates to being miserable and a crank. Don't be that, church. We should not, we should be the happiest people in the world. We shouldn't be. You know, church is this place where you got to get dressed up real nice and you got to come put your mask on. You got to act like you got no problems. This church is full of problems. Jesus is taking care of them. So, so God wants us to be joyful, He wants us to be hopeful, but He is serious too. The Bible's serious. If you haven't. If you don't know that, you haven't read it. The purpose for which the Bible is written is serious. I often wonder what Jesus was like, like to spend time with Jesus. I wonder what it was like to spend time with him. We don't have any pictures of him. We don't know what he looked like. We know how he acted. But what was it like to spend time with him? My guess is people wanted to be around Jesus. People were always flocking to hear him. He was an incredible storyteller. Don't you like being around people that can tell good stories? We pay money to hear people tell good stories. He could tell good stories, and he was incredible with a punchline. Man, his, he had punchlines that delivered with power. People wanted to be around him. But there were times, right, where he was serious. This letter that Paul has written to the church in Galatians is serious. Unlike any of his other letters, and most of, his, most of the New Testament is made up of letters that Paul wrote, there is something omitted from this letter that is, not, that is, that is present in every other letter that Paul wrote. You, you go through them. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians. Colossians. He wrote them all. There is something in those letters that is absent from Galatians. You know what it is? It's any expression of thanks or gratitude. Whoa, Paul. Why so serious? In Romans, he says, I always thank God for all of you. Without ceasing, I mention you to God in my prayers. I long to see you. Corinthians, he gives thanks to them. And this is particularly striking. He thanks God for them because their church is a mess. I mean, people are sleeping with their mother-in-law. It's crazy. Crazy church. And he actually starts out the letter saying, I always thank God when I think of you. In Corinthians 2, the second letter, he's so thankful that now he's boasting about them. He's bragging. He, goes, he shows up at other churches and he brags about the church in Corinth. In Ephesus, he says, I've heard of your faith in Jesus. I've heard of your love for the saints, for one another. And I don't stop giving thanks to God for you. 
in Philippi, he says, I thank my God every, in all my memories of you. Thoughts of you, paraphrasing, thoughts of you bring a smile to my face. In the church in Colossae, thoughts of you got me thanking God again. In Thessalonica, he says, I remember your work of faith, your steadfast love, and it gives me constant joy. Thessalonians 2, he says, I tell everyone about you. I brag about you because you're growing in your love for Jesus and others, and you're growing in your faith. Galatians. Thanksgiving, gratitude, nada. Why so serious, Paul? F.F. Bruce says that Galatians is this solitary exception to all of his letters. It plunges immediately into rebuke, correction. You're saying, man, I wish I'd have stayed home and just get ready for the birds game. I didn't want to hear a rebuke. Sometimes we've got to be serious. Have you ever grown without correction at anything? Have you ever gotten better at anything without someone correcting you? No. You're deceiving yourself. God wants us to feel these words of alarm. You might ask, though, Paul, why are you being so serious? Like, you can't be thankful for anything? Tim Keller talking about the book in Galatians, he says that in some ways, this book, this letter right here, is the most gospel-central book in our Bible. You can find the gospel everywhere in your Bibles, but you're going to find it, you're going to see it particularly clear in the book of Galatians. And when I talk about the gospel, I don't want to make sure people aren't confused. When I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about everything that God did in Jesus to save sinners. Everywhere you look, you'll see the gospel in your Bible. But no other book is as gospel-centric as Galatians. No other book talks about how important the gospel is, not just to get your unbelieving neighbor saved, but the center of the Christian life is the gospel. Martin Luther, in his commentary, says something that pretty much summarizes the whole letter. Here's what he says. The truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Okay, that's hard to follow. Wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Listen to where he's going now. Most necessary, it is therefore that we should know this gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Yo. Why so brutal? Why so serious? Paul, why so serious? Martin Luther, writing his commentary on Galatians, why so serious? Now, that's a very Luther way of putting something. He was a fighter. But why beat it into their heads? Paul planted this church just like we planted Brandywine Grace. He watched Jesus change their lives, change their families, transform marriages, Then he left, and when he left, they were running hard after Jesus. Some news has come back to him. Something serious has happened. And Paul is experiencing some serious emotion when he thinks about what has happened here to this church. And the emotional tone of his letter is like gut-wrenching. He's feeling some things that are strong. It's visceral. 
There's something rotten now in the Galatians church. And it's affecting Paul at the deepest level. That's why he says he's astonished. He's astonished that they're so quickly deserting Jesus. In chapter 3, he calls them fools. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Chapter 4, he says, what has become of you? Chapter 4, verse 19, he says, I'm in anguish over you. Like a woman giving birth to her children, I'm, I'm in agony over what I see happening to you. Chapter 5, you were running well. What happened? What hindered you? Who cut in on you? Why'd you stop? Why so serious, Paul? What's the problem here? The problem here is serious. The message of the good news about Jesus Christ was at stake. The message of hope, the message of salvation, all of it was at stake. The Galatians had turned away from Jesus and and all that God had accomplished by grace to save them, and they were turning to another gospel. Paul's main point of the whole letter, take your pencil uh, and circle this. Galatians 2, verse 16. Here's the main point. Circle this, because this is what holds the whole letter together. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. We know that a person is not justified. What's that? Fancy word. Made right with God. How does a person get right with God? Paul is saying it's not by obedience. It's not by works. It's not by adherence to the law. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, who does all the work for you. Anybody with me? This is why Paul is so serious. Salvation is by grace alone, not by any works that you contribute. Oh man, that makes us go tilt because we think we got to earn it. Because we think we got to measure up to God. We think we got to do things in order to get God to like us so that He would then save us. But that's not the gospel. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Why so serious, Paul? Why so serious, Luther? Why so serious, Kenny? Because there's nothing more important than the state of your soul. There's nothing more important than the state of your soul. That's why Paul's serious. Because he believes souls are at stake. There's nothing more serious than the condition, the state, of your soul. The Christian faith stands or falls on the truth of Paul's teaching to the Galatians. The Christian faith stands or falls on your understanding of who Jesus is. The Christian faith stands or falls on your understanding of the Gospel. Your understanding of what actually justifies you before God. What actually makes you right with God. This letter deals with matters on which your eternal destiny hangs. That's why it's serious. I think you're convinced. Here's what I want to say. The truth that salvation, and John Piper really helped me with this, the truth that salvation is by grace alone should echo in us 
with profound seriousness. And that serious should be manifested in a couple different emotions, a few different emotions. And we're going to take a look at what they should be. The first one is serious joy. Serious joy. So if you're a note taker, you're, you're saying the truth that salvation is by grace alone should echo in me with seriousness. First seriousness is serious joy. And I find that in verses 3 through 5. Now, in verses 3 through 5, Paul is just writing his opening salutation to the Galatians. It's just his opening to the letter. So he, tell, he, he identifies himself. He says that I'm writing with some other people that are with me, the brothers who are with me. I'm writing to the churches. And then he tells them, grace and peace from God. This is what I'm praying for you. Now, one of the things that we do when we read letters is we scan through the opening part. You ever get like an important letter or, you know, like maybe it's a college admissions letter or something like that. And they put all this, hey, Kenny, and then they say all these like nice things. It's like the opening of the letter. But that's not the part you care about. Did I get in or didn't I? You, you're reading, you're scanning. That's what we do, like uh, away with the mumbo jumbo, right? And that's what we do with this letter too. Well, let's, let's, get to the, let's get to what he's really upset about. And we pass over verses 3 through 5, which are actually supposed, they're, they were, they're Holy Spirit inspired. They mean something. And it's in these verses that we find Paul's discussion about why the gospel is so precious, which leads to his other emotions that he's experiencing. But you've got to understand, before you can understand the rest of the letter, you've got to understand this part. So let's not just pass on, oh yeah, grace and peace, and Jesus, oh yeah, and he delivered us from destruction and all evil, and he's prepared a place for us, and we're going to heaven, our eternal security, we're, we're secure eternally, blah, 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 blah. But what about the next part? We don't want to do that. Paul says grace and peace. Paul is praying that God would shower them with grace and with peace. What's grace? It's unmerited favor from God. It's this idea that God is good to you, but you didn't deserve it. That's what grace is. And he's saying grace first. And then after grace hits you and you, and you receive grace, then what happens? You, the Bible says that we're at enmity with God. The Bible says that he created us. We were his creations and we ran away from him. We, we don't want his rule. We don't want him reigning over us. We take off. We run away. We rebel. And so we're not at peace with God anymore. We're beefing with God. Some of you are still beefing with God. You feel it. You don't have a good relationship. And, and what Paul is saying here is you can have peace with God. It's grace first. And then once you receive the grace of God in Jesus then you're able, you're set free. The barrier of sin has been removed and you are welcomed into God's family where you can experience peace with Him. Amen? Anybody experiencing peace this morning? You're thankful for that, right? Paul says grace and peace to you. Now, Paul himself is an incredible illustration of God's mercy and His grace. If you know anything about Paul, you know that he was rising quickly in the ranks of Judaism. He's a leader in the church. 
They were opposed to Jesus. They were the ones that had Jesus crucified and put to death. He's rising in the ranks. Smart. Hates Christians. So much so that he participates in their persecution, even leading to some of them being murdered. The Scripture tells us that when Stephen was martyred, Paul was there watching everybody's clothes. So you're talking about a guy. I want you to think about the person that is the least likely candidate for salvation in your entire experience. This is the person that you just like, there there ain't no way that that guy could ever be in heaven. That's Paul. That's Paul. He's the least likely candidate to actually be telling people about Jesus instead of persecuting them for their belief in Jesus. So Paul himself, the one who's writing this letter, is an incredible illustration of God's grace. God chose Paul. We're going to see next week that God chose him before he was born. And then God planned to let Paul become a hateful persecutor of Jesus. God planned that. Why? So that it would be crystal clear that when God called Paul, when God saved Paul, it was God that was going to get all of the credit. No credit going to Paul. I hated him. And then Jesus, I had this encounter with Jesus. And He totally transformed my life. And He saved me by grace. And He brought me into a relationship with God that is now defined by peace. Salvation is utterly inexplicable from a human standpoint. And that's true for you guys too. Think about, do you ever take time to think about who you were apart from Christ? Now, some of us grew up in the church. Some of us grew up in families where there was a lot of common grace, good family, a lot of self-control. People loved you. You were secure. Some of us grew up in really terrible families where those things weren't true. Sometimes it can be hard for some of us to see that, wow, is is that really true? Salvation is utterly inexplicable from a human standpoint. It was true in Paul's life. It's true in your life well if you really know your own story. It wasn't, you're not there. You're not in a, in a place of experiencing grace and peace with God because of things you've done. You're there because entirely His grace. It's utterly inexplicable. I love running into people that I haven't seen for 20 or 30 years. And they ask, hey, what do you do? I'm a pastor. <laughs> you? Oh, I remember you. Utterly inexplicable from a human standpoint. You who were afraid to get up in front of the class and read a book report? You stand in front of people? That's utterly inexplicable from a human standpoint. 
Grace has powerfully changed me and you, and it's utterly inexplicable from any human standpoint. Think about heaven. I I love imagining that when we get there, there's going to be people that we recognize and we see, and we are going to laugh out loud. We're going to say, oh my, (laughs) how in the world did you get in here? And if it was by your works, you'd need an explanation. How'd you earn that? But you know what everybody's going to answer? I know. Totally and utterly inexplicable except for Jesus. I want him. You with me? Paul would say there is absolutely no adequate explanation for his life apart from the glory of God revealed to him in Jesus. There is no adequate explanation for my life apart from the grace of God towards me. Do you have an adequate explanation for your salvation? You shouldn't. It's all God's kindness and His grace that has flowed towards me. So what should that produce? Look at what else he says. Deliverance from the present evil age. He talks about your salvation being according to God's plan. God saved you as part of His plan. He planned to save you. You're not an accident. And all of this brings Paul such joy. Like the most important thing to him is Jesus. The most important thing to him is the Gospel. He's not a crazy lunatic. He's saying that God has so changed my life in Jesus that Jesus is my greatest prize. He's my greatest treasure. Because there's nothing more important than the state of your soul. And, and God has taken care of the state of my soul. It's all wrapped up now in Jesus. And so that makes Paul extremely happy. Is it making you happy this morning? Does that fill your hearts with joy? I like to think of it as the, this difference. Some people think that they need Christianity or they need, they need religion and, and they've got to enter in, do a couple things just so that they can get their eternity right with God. So, so the way they live their life really doesn't matter right now, but they can look back on some confirmation or a baptism or a, an in, you, know, you were christened as an infant or you prayed a prayer. Your mom told you about Jesus and you got, you know, you, you went and prayed a prayer when you were six and then you've been a hellion ever since. That's not cause and effect. I don't mean that. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter if you do those things and it doesn't transform your life, right? We think sometimes of religion and Jesus as a way to buy fire insurance. I don't want to go where those bad people are going. So what do I got to do? What's the minimum level of commitment I got to express here? Where do I got to sign up to just do a little bit to get some fire insurance, that's not going to result in an extremely joyful person if that's your approach. So I like to think of it this way. You're walking down the street and you run into someone um, and you say, hey, what's up? And they say, oh, nothing much. And you say, where are you coming from? You say, oh, I was just at the insurance. I just bought some insurance uh, to insure my home against fire. And, and, And you go, oh, wow. You must be, like, exuberant over that. No, I'm just buying some fire insurance. It wasn't like a big deal. It was just something that was on my to-do list. I had to take care of it. I had to spend some money so I could have some fire insurance. 
But say you run into a person who has just returned from the hospital where they spent the last two weeks, and you're like, whoa, you know, what happened? You're like, my family and I, our house caught on fire, and we were trapped in the bottom. We, I laid down. I knew I was going to die. Smoke had filled our house. My kids, I couldn't get them out. You have, I, I, it was the most traumatic experience I've ever felt in my life. And then all of a sudden, I heard the siren. Some firemen kicked in the door and they pulled me and my kids. My wife and two of my kids were unconscious. Pulled them out. Got us all to the hospital. And you won't believe it. We're all alive. Now I ask you, where's the level of joy going to be different? The person who's got fire insurance? Or the person who's rest? Can you imagine if I said, oh, did you have fire insurance? <laughs> I'm alive! And it's forever changed my life. It's life and death here we're talking. Jesus rescued me. I'm alive in Him. And that's the reason for my joy. Folks, are you feeling serious joy this morning? Because you are like those that have been plucked out of the fire, not those that have just stopped at the State Farm local office and have purchased some fire insurance for life. See, all right. Serious joy. This, this truth that the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone ought to echo in us in, in profound seriousness, serious joy. What's the next one? Serious astonishment. Serious astonishment. Paul moves from expressions of gratitude to God for the gospel, and then he moves to, I am astonished. Another way of translating it, I am shocked. I am can't believe this is happening. What? What's happening? That you are so quickly deserting Him. Who's Him? Jesus. You're so quickly deserted. The one who pl- are you? Are you serious? You're deserting the one who plucked you from the fire and rescued you. You're deserting Him. Am I understanding that right? Because that's astonishing to me. So Paul's saying. A quick desertion. I, I used to go to the beach. They're, he's astonished because of how quickly they're deserting. I, I used to go to the beach when I was younger. I don't know how old I was, but I would go with some friends that, that had a, beach, a house down in Ocean City, New Jersey. And, and I remembered, I was thinking about this this week, I remember the, the girl was someone we were all friends with. And we'd go down there, and her, her sisters, she had twin sisters that were ahead of us like five years, six years, or something like that, and they had these boyfriends, and I remember just watching them hang out and stuff like that. Anyway, the point of the story was this. They were preparing to get married, and, and this one sister was marrying this guy, and they were all in love, and we'd see them down there in the summer. They're walking on the ocean, all in love, and then next year I went, so they got married. I went back the next summer, was spending time with this family, and she was divorced already. 
I mean, the summer before, I was like all in love, getting ready to get married. Dude quickly deserted her. And I remember seeing her, like she used to be so joyful, and this summer she just kind of sat, she was, in a, she was in a fog. It shocked me. Yeah. Your parents just got done paying for the wedding. They haven't even paid for it yet. That's deeper than that, right? It was shocking. A quick desertion is shocking. The words so quickly deserting echo the golden calf incident. Do you guys remember? You know your Bibles, the golden calf incident. Moses, God rescues the Israelites, delivers them. Then Moses goes up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, to get the law of God, and he disappears for like 40 days. He's gone for a little while. People start getting antsy. What's going on? Where's Moses? What are we going to do? Who should we turn to? Oh, I know. Everybody bring your earrings. Bring your bracelets. Bring all your gold. I'll throw them into the fire. We'll melt it. We'll make a golden calf, and we'll worship that. Sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> and Moses came down, and the Lord said to Moses, you better get back down there. How quickly they've deserted me. This, this is echoing the same thing. Galatians, same way. God, Paul comes and preaches the gospel. They quickly abandon. Moses was astonished. My friend's family was astonished when that guy left his wife after less than one year. Paul is astonished that the Galatians are so quickly abandoning the gift of grace that's theirs in Christ. This forces a question upon us. What would have come along that would have lured the Galatians away from Jesus and His incredible grace? What was it? Evidently, there were some people who came along. They were troubling the Galatians. We're told they were disturbing the Galatians by presenting to them another gospel. It was getting them all upset. It was causing them to doubt the validity of Paul. That's why Paul has to defend his apostolic ministry and that it came from God, his authority came from God, because they're saying, whatever Paul was saying, that ain't true. Whatever Paul was saying about Jesus, okay, okay, but you've got to add circumcision and the obedience to the Old Testament law to your, you've got to add these works to your belief in Jesus, and then and only then can you be part of the family of God. It's a distortion. Now what's crazy is, don't think of these people as Jews. They were Gentiles. So they didn't follow Jewish law. They weren't circumcised as, a, as an express. Circumcision for us is a medical procedure. For them, it was a, a, a depicted whether you were part of God's covenant people. And so what these people are saying to Galatians, they're saying to Gentiles, you need to follow Jewish law too in order to be saved. And they were scratching their heads. Really? That's not what Paul said. That's because Paul's wrong. You've got to have, in other words, you've got to have works. You've got to earn your way to God along with belief in Jesus. Paul is so upset by that teaching that he passes by any gratitude or thanks. Let me get right to it. Because the gospel's at stake. This is serious. Let 
You got to do things to earn your salvation. But Paul is saying if there's any amount of works that must be done for you to earn salvation, then you are turning away from Jesus because Jesus says it's all of grace. You can't do anything. So, you, so Paul says, you're turning to another gospel. If it was even possible that there was another one, the old system doesn't work, and no one knew that better than Paul. You talk about a man who was keeping the law in order to justify himself before God, and he realizes, man, that's all, that's all a farce. I can never get to God. He was killing Christians in an effort to please God. Talk about bizarre thinking. He was doing it because he thought that would justify him. But the only thing that justifies us is grace alone, through faith alone, in who? Christ alone. He's saying, listen, you were like the men who were rescued in the fire. It was a complete and total rescue on God's part. You're like, man, all I was doing is dying in here, man. I didn't contribute anything. You mean you didn't even raise your pinky up, grab the fireman? No, I was out cold. He just grabbed me out. I woke up in this hospital bed. That's a better picture of grace. He didn't go through the house waking people up. Do you have fire insurance? Do you have fire insurance? He didn't, he didn't ask me what I'd done to deserve it. Yo, 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 you've been a good person? How good? Flames coming. Closing in on us. Well, how good is good enough? Well, I don't know. You must not be then. Over to the next person. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say, he didn't come over to me and look at me and say, oh, gosh, that's an ugly one there. Let's go on over here. He didn't save me because I was able to clean myself up in order to make myself pretty for Him. He saved me in the state, sinful state that I was in by grace. Is that true for you? Then you should be astonished at any inclinations to turn away from that. That's what Paul is. Paul's saying they're forgetting the grace of the Gospel. Alright guys, let me just look here. Paul is astonished that the Galatians would turn from a system, a religious system of grace, to a religious system of works. He's seriously astonished because there's nothing more important than the state of your soul. So he's astonished that they would turn away from Jesus. Paul is seriously astonished. We should be astonished too when our children, our family members, our friends, our neighbors turn away from the free grace of God and Jesus. But friends, we should be equally astonished at our proneness to wander from the grace of God. I wish. I wish that I could say that Jesus has so gripped my heart that there's never a trace in me of wandering away from Him. 
I wonder what degree of astonishment Jesus has over me at times. How often does he say, oh, Kenny, how quickly you desert the grace of God and put your trust in something else. How quickly you drift. You ever feel drifting in your life? You ever feel your proneness to wander? My son Jesse and I were surfing last weekend. The conditions were terrible. The wind was blowing like crazy. We were at LBI, and they had these yellow flags out. You had to stay between the yellow flags, which are like 150 to 200 yards apart. And the wind was blowing like crazy, and we paddled out at the one flag, and the next thing you know, the, 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 the lifeguards are whistling. You know, you're out of your zone. What? What are you talking about? I've been sit- I paddled out here and I sat on my surfboard. I'm floating. And then I looked. Oh my goodness. I've been out here a minute and I have drifted 150 yards and it felt like I was sitting still. How quickly we drift unknowingly. How quickly you are drifting from God unknowingly. And then, this was true. And a couple of people we were surfing with were better at this than me, but you had to start paddling against the wind. I paddled like crazy. I'd be like... (sighs) And then I'd stop and look up. I hadn't even moved. I'm out of gas. I got nothing. I'm making effort. I'm seriously trying to resist. And I'm still drifting. You ever feel that in your life? You're actually trying hard to follow Jesus and you feel like, I keep going back to this place. One day, no wind for surfers in heaven. You get my drift? No resistance in heaven. But right now, we're fighting, we're drifting. For the Galatians, it was false teaching. I have so many things I want to say to you guys. I just want to, I want to hit two more things about astonishment. I'm going to move quickly to my last point, and then I'm going to bring the band up. Every day, I asked some of my friends, I was just sending out some text threads, asking them, how do you, how do you drift away from the Gospel? Where do you see that? Where are you, where are you drifting from the Gospel? Where are you distorting the Gospel? Where is there Gospel deviation? Where are you believing lies? Because we all, that's what causes the drift. And one of them said, every day I drift into legalism. Not the same kind as Galatians, but I drift into feeling that God's love for me or His willingness to hear my prayers are contingent on my behavior and not on His grace. You ever do that? That's an astonishing drift. Because the Gospel is not what you do for God, it's what God did for you. All around us, we see the church and people watering down the Gospel to make it less offensive to our friends, to the people in your neighborhood. We see this. People who think differently, you start softening the edges of the Gospel. The Gospel is offensive. We, start, we see Christians saying, hey, you can believe whatever you want about Jesus. You don't even have to believe in Jesus. Just be a good person and that will save you. Man, that sounds good. But it's an astonishing drift from the Gospel. One of the reasons why people drift from the Gospel is because it's so offensive. And that's why the Galatians are drifting. Because it's offensive. 
Paul says these guys are preaching circumcision so that they can be in line with the Jewish church, with the Jewish people. They don't want to be offensive. We don't do anything that's offensive, so let's, like, let's try to all get along. They're afraid that the Jews are going to reject them if their Gentile converts aren't circumcised. Listen, the gospel's not just offensive to Jews. It's offensive to everybody. A lot of people in the world think that religion's okay, that morality is good for us. Have you ever talked to someone that says, oh, religion is good for some people. It's good for the world. Maybe it's good for you. But Christianity is offensive. You hear people say, are you saying that those of us, I heard Tim Keller talking about this, are you saying that those of us that have worked our whole lives to keep ourselves out of the moral gutter are in the exact same place spiritually as the people who are in the gutter? Are you saying we both have to be saved in exactly the same way? How dare you say that? It's offensive. Or people might say, are you saying that good people in other religions who have lived good lives and are very moral in all these ways, if they don't believe the gospel of Jesus, they're lost? How dare you? Friends, the gospel hope that Jesus offers, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is offensive. You okay with the offensive nature of the gospel? Have you come to grips with it? If not, you're drifting from it. Or you've never really believed it. And that's an astonishing drift from Jesus. We have to have the courage to tell people we work with, people we spend time with, people who live in our families, people who live in our neighborhoods, that if they're not trusting in Christ, the risen one, they are not saved. How much easier it is to smile, just take out the trash, and just think that by being a good person, you're going to save somebody. That's a drift from the gospel. There's nothing more important than the state of our soul. Let me get the band to return as we take a look at this last point. And I intended to make this point short. Salvation, I've said, by grace alone should echo in us with profound seriousness, serious joy, serious astonishment, and look at the emotion Paul ends with. Anger. Two times. Not anger towards the Galatians. He's astonished with the Galatians. Who's he angry at? You guys with me? He's angry at the people who are giving them a false message. He's saying, let them be accursed. Whoa, Paul. Calm down. Two times he says it. Accursed? Whose curse? Paul's curse or God's curse? Paul's curse is nothing compared to God's curse. Paul says Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's going to tell us that in chapter 3. But now we have this group of people, these teachers, these influential people that are directing the Galatians away from the all-sufficient, curse-removing, substitutionary work of Jesus. So Paul says, cursed! Damn them. 
damned be the damners. You didn't know the Bible had cursing in it, did you? This is happening to people in your family, people in your church, people in your neighborhood. They're being exposed to different kinds of Gospels which are no Gospel at all. They're being lured away from Jesus as their prized treasure and they're being led away from grace. And Paul says, because he's a reliable witness, he says every alternative Gospel to what I have been preaching, every alternative Gospel can be cursed, can be damned, the way we would say it, can go to hell. Where all lies are headed. Someone's giving you a false gospel. Someone's distorting the gospel. To hell with that. You ready to live and die with Jesus, church? You ready to live and die for Jesus? You ready to bank your life on Jesus? Then we must be willing to say to hell with every ideology, every theology that leads people away from Jesus. Now let's be careful here. Band, start playing something nice because it's getting heavy in here. (laughs) Let's be careful here because I just want to say this and I'll have a chance to say this more. If you go out of here with, that's it, I got my marching orders. I'm going to get on Twitter now and talk to everybody who's saying something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to let them have it. To hell with you and your ideas. Man, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Paul loves the Galatians. He's astonished at them. What he's angry at is people like, and I want to name, like Benny Hinn, whose nephew just wrote a book. Benny Hinn's famous. He goes all over the world preaching what's called the prosperity gospel. It's not about Jesus. It's about what Jesus is going to do for you. Make you rich. Make you not poor. Make you heal everything if you just have enough faith. It's a deviation from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Does he mention Jesus? Yes. Does he say that that you should accept Jesus into your heart and be saved? Yes. But he distorts its deviation. The strongest lies have a lot of truth mixed into them. So so Costi Hinn, his nephew, has just written a book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. He's exposing the false gospel that his uncle is preaching. Listen, don't you worry about going home tonight and exposing all the false gospels that are out there. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try loving some people that have bought into those lies and showing them the grace of God in Jesus through actually investing in relationship and get off Twitter and get off all those places where you might be tempted to angrily tell people who don't believe with you politically what you think. I'm going too far. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's start with joy. Let's be astonished. And with our anger, let's be careful. All right? The message of grace, that salvation is a free gift, it tells us that grace and peace and ours in Jesus, that we can be made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that Jesus gave himself for our sins, that he delivered us from all evil and destruction, and may it produce serious astonishment and sadness that people we love would drift from it. May it produce serious anger when we see people actually taking Jesus and distorting him for their own gain. 
And may it, more than anything else, produce serious joy that your sins are forgiven and the eternal state of your soul is secure. That's the kind of seriousness that the gospel wants to produce. Jesus and his gospel are either seriously important. If they're true, it's seriously important. If it's not true, it's seriously unimportant. What he can't be is moderately important. Don't make Jesus moderately important. Amen. Let's stand and worship him.